Well, good morning. We're continuing in the book of Matthew in chapter 26. And uh, we're starting off with verse 30. And so let's, uh, I'm just going to read verses 30 through 35, and then I'll jump ahead and, and, and when we get to verse 36 and read some more. So, verses 30 through 35 to start with. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. This starts up while they're still in the upper room. And uh, Jesus had shared the Passover with his disciples. We've gone through all the scriptures dealing with that. A number of things going on in this chapter that are showing that we're leading and getting close to the time of, of Jesus' death. Uh, the anointing in Bethany, uh, you know, the, and, and then Jesus sharing and instituting communion and the meaning of it. And then here he is saying just bluntly that, uh, that they are, you know, that he's going to, to uh, die and, and, and that they're going to fall, or that they're going to fall away, uh, and, He's going to be struck down, and there, you know, Peter is denying it. But you notice it very clearly. It says, "And all the other disciples as well." We tend to to jump on Peter's case a little bit sometimes, but we got to remember that that all the disciples were going along with this. Uh, Peter just happens to be the one that speaks loud, and so uh, uh, that's the situation as we see it here. Now they were. I, I thought a side note here would be interesting to share. You know, because it says that they were they had sung a, a hymn, and uh, and then they went out to the to the Mount of Olives, and the the, the hymn that they 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 saw, sang, uh, Hallel Psalms. We just sing Hallelujah, and and Hallel means praise. You know, and so uh, they they sang a the, a number of praise songs, and actually two divisions. And it's Psalms 113 through 118. That's why we, we read part of Psalm 118 this morning. They would sing the first uh, two Psalms, the 113 and 114, at the beginning of the meal. And then at the time of the fourth cup of blessing, the last cup of, of wine at the evening service of Passover, they would share verses, uh, the, the Psalms 115, 16, or 17 and 18. Uh, yeah. And and so uh, and and so this is what they were sharing and singing. It's interesting if you want to go to those psalms again, one thirteen through one eighteen. It all ties together with this idea of, of of a shepherd and even the fact of the rejection. In fact, in Psalm one eighteen, it talks about the cornerstone being rejected. So uh, include that in your thinking as you go through these verses. Uh, and and so now we have this this hymn that's been sung. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan described it, you know, that's where I got most of this information uh, from uh, a book that he wrote on it. And 
it's also called the Egyptian Halal because it has to do with the Passover and their coming out of Egypt. And the, the, the cups that they would drink, the first cup was, I will take, stood for, I will take you out. The second one, I will save you. The third one, I will redeem you. And the fourth, I will take you as a nation or actually as my people. And so this picture of, of God embracing His people, loving them, saving them, delivering them, redeeming them, is, is all part of this picture that comes out of these Psalms 115, uh, 113 through 118. It says that they went to the Mount of Olives. Okay, this is just outside of, of, of Jerusalem. And uh, it says that they, they uh, uh, if you add Luke into this, Luke chapter 22 says that this was a custom of Jesus to do. In other words, this was a common practice. Jesus, uh, would, when they were in the area, uh, it sounds like in the evenings, this would be a not an unusual thing for them to do, to go up to the Mount of Olives and have a time of prayer, to be alone, away from the crowds, away from the people. Now, at this time of the year, we've got to remember how many people are in and around the city of Jerusalem at Passover. You'll heard, we heard uh, numbers this last few weeks of, from the messages that have been shared you know, and, and Josephus, a historian, talks about two plus million, maybe even three, based on the amount of, of lambs that would be offered in sacrifice during that time. And, I, and, and one lamb per ten people is kind of the way they looked at it. So you can start to think about how many lambs were sacrificed. And it was all done at the temple, in a particular part of the, of, of the, the temple in the, in the plaza. And... It's it, for us. It's hard to picture, and quite candidly, uh, it's 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 something that it's hard for us to grasp and, and grab a hold of because it sounds you know so harsh, if you will. Uh, but the idea was God was teaching them, and remember, the law and all of these things were to tutor us. Was the necessity of something innocent shedding his blood in order to cover our sins? And a lamb's blood was, was the symbolic picture of that happening. Did the lamb's blood actually do the job? No, it was, it, it would be ultimately only Christ's blood that could do that. But, and so his blood goes both over the past and into the, into our, up to our future to cover the sins. But, but it was a, a, a time of, 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 sacrifice that was supposed to to hit their heart that this was necessary to cover their sins it was actually to create a heavy heart as this was being accomplished because it was necessary because i have sinned and so in sharing and doing this all of these lambs being slaughtered you also have to understand a substantial flow of blood it literally covered the courtyard they actually plugged up the drains where normally so that it was actually covering the, the, the courtyard to a little bit of depth so that you, in a sense, had to walk through it. It was very symbolic and it was very graphic way of showing that, that this is serious. Blood must be shed for the forgiveness of sin. And that man's blood will never accomplish it also. That's part of what we learn from the law of the Old Testament. Man's blood can't do it. 
And so we have these sacrifices through the year and then at Passover every year, over and over, year after year after year. In the book of Hebrews, it says it went on and on and on. But once Jesus comes into the picture, the, the, the end of sacrifices, the one and only the final sacrifice to accomplish what all of those were teaching us about. So, Jesus and, and the disciples uh, leaving the, the, the city of Jerusalem, uh, as was his custom, uh, Jesus saying here, you know, that, they, that, that you will all fall away because of me this night. And he's quoting a, a, a prophetic scripture in reference to what was going to happen from Zechariah 13, chapter, or chapter 13, verse 7. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But there's a sense of hope that comes right into the middle of this, verse 32. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And so you're scattered is not the end of this picture. I I will gather you back. I will meet you and we will, you know, it will come back together. Peter, you know, he's like I said, he's the one that always seems to speak out and act sometimes maybe without thinking first. Uh I I think in terms of of how many times I've inserted my foot into my mouth and and said, "Oh no, it can't be that way." Or somebody would say something like, you know, and I would think, oh, no, that'll never happen. You know? and, and that's Peter. He's just, you know, he's saying, oh, no, Lord. This is... And he's been doing this with Jesus right along. There's a couple other times where Jesus has said, this is, you know, we're approaching this. I'm going to, oh, no, no, Lord, that's not going to happen. And I used to look at it and think, Peter, who are you to rebuke the Lord? But then he was just coming. He, he was, I really believe he was so in love with what, who Christ is and what he was doing. He's the first one to confess him that, that he just, he couldn't picture anything but absolute success, victory, and the Romans being thrown out of, of Jerusalem and out of, out of Israel and the kingdom restored. These were all the things that he had been taught since he was a, 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 an infant, really, since scriptures had been read to him and the scriptures that he memorized growing up and, and understanding. So this was what he, and, and the teachings that were coming from the, the rabbis and the scribes, and, and so this is what he knew. And this is what he expected. So all along, in fact, I've shared this so many times, but, but even after the resurrection, just before the ascension, in Acts it says, the, the disciples said, oh, are we going to go do it now and kick out the Romans? You know, and, and Jesus said, no, no, no. I want you to go back to the upper room and just wait. And, 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 and it's going to come together for you. But this picture of, of you will all fall away, just as much as they had all actually said, none of this, no, this isn't going to happen, Lord. He said, you all will fall away. Peter adds that, you know, again, I will never fall away. And I thought, again, too, there is a sense of pride here. There is a sense of, of, of the flesh being the dominant thing. He's thinking more in, in, the, in the physical than he is in the spiritual. Maybe Peter was a little insulted. I don't know. You know to, to, that Jesus would think that he would fail him. I mean, Peter certainly doesn't think himself as any kind of coward. 
And evidence shows that he doesn't seem to be in any part of his life. In fact, there's a few things that he'll do ahead after this that would imply that he stepped forward maybe a little more abruptly and with a little more intent and, and, and certainly not cowardice at another point as we will get further into this. But I will never fall away. And Jesus is truly, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter says to Jesus again, you know, this, this picture, if I must die, even, you know, I will not deny you. And again, like I said, be sure you catch that all of the disciples agreed and said the same thing. Not, we won't do this. We will not deny you. Now that sets us up to where we're actually wanting to go, and that's the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, the last songs, uh, a couple of songs we've been singing, really pointing this out and, and, and what's going on here. And Jesus is with the disciples. They're going to Gethsemane. By the way, the word Gethsemane has a literal translation, which it means oil press. And I don't know if you understand. Some of, how many of you have the old any old-fashioned crank? Presses to make apple juice or or any of that. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I was thinking. Uh, I, I kind of got a reputation for being, you know, restoring those, uh, and 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 some of the ones that I restored anywhere from very small ones to huge ones. And uh, there, the, the the there's a certain level where the slats in the in the the press. And there's the, the part that goes down like this to press the, the fruit. And you've got a big crank. And the bigger the press, the, the bigger the gear shifts are for, so that you can make it easy to do. And, and the juice coming out and into a, a, a container underneath. And, and so the idea of an oil press was that they, they pressed the olives into oil. And so Gethsemane means oil press. And what an appropriate thought when you realize that Jesus is being pressed, if you will, on our behalf. And I, I just I think that's a powerful picture, and and I, I know absolutely in my heart that, that that there's no mistake in all of this tying together perfectly like this. It's the way God does things. So they're at, they're headed to the Mount of Olives. Let's read verses 36 through 46. Make sure I get in the right spot there. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And He said to His disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with Him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, He began to be sorrowful and troubled. The two sons of Zebedee are James and John. Right. Then He said to them, my soul, and he's speaking specifically to, to, to Peter, James, and John here. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, when to, uh, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. 
Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And Jesus came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So when he returned to them, it's obvious that they woke up. He says, he talks to them very specifically. And then again, verse 42, for a second time, he went away and he prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, and the implication here is that he didn't wake them up this time. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and he said to them, sleep and take your rest. Later on, see that the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And then finally, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Jesus with the disciples, the Garden of Gethsemane, there to pray again, something that appears to be a common thing that, that Jesus did. Um, as they're going over to Gethsemane, uh, the Gospel of John adds this picture that they were crossing the brook Kidron. Now, an interesting thing that goes with this, and I, and, and I was reading through some things that Spurgeon and, and, and uh, uh, G. Campbell Morgan both had written about this, and over the years I've read a, a, a book just about the brook Kidron and stuff. It, it normally is, it, it runs, it's kind of like a lot of the, the, the brooks or creeks and, and even some of the small rivers in, in the area of, and around Jerusalem run dry most of the year. They're more catching the rain for runoff than they are. It's pretty much like what you would find in Southern California, where, you know, where I grew up, you know, they, you know, we had all these river beds and, and no water. And there were a few of them with underground water streams running, but, but you very seldom saw the river until there was a big rain, two or three inches. And, uh, but that was enough because uh, the ground is hard and, and stuff those rivers would fill up and sometimes even flood, you know. And so uh, we're, you know, that's kind of the topography here too. It's, it's not uncommon. But the Brook Kidron had a special service it served, if you will, to the temple. The drains that ran from the temple where the sacrifices were made ran off into the Brook Kidron. And eventually the, the streams would clean itself out. But they say that, that, that during the time, especially of Passover, that it actually had a, a, a strong and even foul odor to it. And that literally there was a little, normally a little bit of water that time of the year running through it. And then the blood from the sacrifices when they unplugged the drains. after, And you think of all the thousands of lambs that have been slaughtered for the Passover. There was actually a flow. Spurgeon said he used the words crimson flow coming down the brook Kidron. And they stepped over that. They passed over that to go to the, to the Gethsemane. And again, I don't think there's anything coincidentally or you know, the fact that Jesus was literally stepping over the symbolic picture of the sacrifice that was being made for sin at Passover to go to the Garden of Gethsemane 
where he was going to talk very directly to his father about what was ahead. He says to, you know, very, you know, he says, sit here while I go over there <laughs> to pray. And he left eight of the disciples there and, and he takes Peter and, and James and John with him. And this isn't the first time that he's taken them aside to a special part of what they're doing. I believe it's because they tended to be the leaders of the group. So we see them at the Mount of Transfiguration. We see them when Jairus' daughter is raised from the dead. Uh, and, and, and so we understand that, that they are getting some additional instruction here as they will ultimately be leading in with the disciples. And, and so he pulls them apart and takes them with him. And then uh, he tells them to stay and to watch and to pray and that he would, you know, and to just walk away from them a little bit. Uh, some scriptures say that that little bit that he walked away would be a stone's throw. I have no idea, and I couldn't actually find anybody that could accurately tell me what a stone's throw was. So, you know, it was one of those things where I, I know how far I can throw a stone, and it's not that far, and, and uh, in the sense of being out of sight by any means. And so the idea was is that he was far enough away there they might not be able to hear all of his words, but that they could certainly see him. And he says, I want you to stay and to pray and to watch and to pray while I'm here. And the word watch that's being used there is to be alert and attentive to what's going on around you. And not just, you know, it, it's, it's really intent to, to set them up. You need to be alert to what's going on. And so it says that Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. Also, it says in verse 37. And the, the idea that it began was like it's starting here, but it's going to crescendo. It's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So it's going to, this, this sorrowfulness, this troubleness, this, this grief that he's experiencing is going to intensify. It's going to grow. And so it begins here in the garden as far as the intensity goes. It's been with us now for quite a while, uh, since the triumphal entry for sure, uh, as before he went into to Jerusalem and he looks over the city of Jerusalem and weeps you know, because of all the people that will reject him and, and not come to him. Uh, and so he's, it, it, it's, it's escalating, it's growing in intensity. And at this point, it's, it's, it's reaching a, a point of what we would say high intensity, and he is sorrowful and, 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 and troubled. This idea is, is to be full of grief. Something that is deep, deep in the soul. Coming from the depths of his soul. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan said it was like a, uh, the idea of the word troubled here was like a man away from his home but wanting to be home. But can't be home. He has to be here. And sorrowful, grieved from the depths of his home. I, I wish I, I, from the depths of his heart, depths of his soul, and this idea that he would rather be home. And I, I don't know, I, I can only relate to it to the point where I know that when I've been on a long trip and away from home for a while and I'm, and I'm, I'm getting close to home, one of the things that I notice frequently is that the speedometer somehow creeps up. 
You know, and and I'm and it's not like I'm intending to. I say, you know, I, you know I, I look at it and I'm going the speed limit. And the next thing you know, I look at it and I'm I'm going faster than the speed limit. Have to back off, and uh, and so thank heavens there's there's speed controls now. But uh, the idea is is that you know he's he's this is not his home. He misses his home. I think that's a powerful picture. He sees calamity coming. This is where the sorrowfulness... He knows what's ahead. Psalm 22. I don't know how many of you are familiar with Psalm 22. But Psalm 22 is a powerful prophetic picture of what's ahead. Including the fact that it begins with the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Where do we hear those words? From the cross. When you look at Psalm 22, it's an amazing picture. When we look at the cross, we're looking at the cross uh, in the Gospels from the point of view of those looking at it. Read Psalm 22. We're looking at Christ on the cross looking down. And the prophetic picture is what he sees, what he feels, what's going on. He talks about being thirsty. He talks about his, his mouth being as dry as a potsherd that's been in the desert which means a piece of broken pottery that's dried up in the desert. I, I, you know, uh, your, your tongue sticking to the roof of your mouth, this type of thing. And, and he, he sees these things. Uh, he knows what is ahead. He knows what is ahead because actually it's a plan that was before what? The foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us this plan was put together before there was a creation. And so, he knows what's ahead. He knows what is coming. And the grief is just tremendous. Uh, you think of Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. It talks about that where it says that he emptied himself. He left heaven. And I was looking at that and I said, what, what did he leave behind? Well, his glorified body, his status. Uh, he, he, the Creator, one person put it, the Creator became the created in the sense that he entered into his creation as a in the flesh god in the flesh god man you know he's 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 put that 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 right to be worshiped and set aside and and given glory aside and entered in and became a man and it says he became a man even a servant of men and not only just a servant of men, but even to the point of death on the cross. If you do a study on the idea of the death on the cross, you understand that to die and be hung on the cross was the, within the framework of, of understanding the, the, the things of, of, of what the Hebrews and the Old Testament talks about. It's the, 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 the worst death. It, it shows you as the worst kind of person that would deserve to be hung on a pole. And the interesting thing, again, is, is that the cross, the way it would be here at this time, was something that the Romans came up with uh, long after the other things about the cross in the Old Testament were ever written. And so it says you know, that, that here he is, to be going through this criminal's death. He emptied himself, became a man, even a servant, humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. Jesus says to 
Peter, James, and John in verse 38. My soul is very sorrowful and even, even to death. He's grieved. And I want to make sure you understand because I, I found a couple of articles from a more liberal perspective that said he was having a panic attack. No, he wasn't having a panic attack. He wasn't having regrets about the plan. He was just, from the point of view of the flesh and the Son of God both, looking ahead, what flesh would long for the cross? But even more so, the Son of God, because He knew what was going to happen on that cross, was that as He, and we'll get to it in more detail in a minute, as He took on the penalty of sin, we'll just leave it at that, He would have that, that moment of separation from the Father. He would experience it. you got to understand, our sins weren't canceled. They weren't just set aside. They were covered completely. The price of sin and, and the penalty of sin was paid in full. And, and, and so we, we, God in His holiness couldn't just set them aside, couldn't just say, oh, we'll just forget about that. There had to be a dealing with it. And in His holiness, He said, I will deal with it myself through my Son. God in the flesh. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The triune God that we worship. God would take care of this Himself. A plan again before the foundation of the world. He was grieved to the soul. He said, even to the point of death. And I, I, I wrote down a thought here. Can grief kill you? Internet's amazing. I typed in, can grief kill you? And it can. You can get so intense in grief that it can bring a heart attack. It can bring aneurysms. There's all sorts of things that can happen because of your blood pressure, the way your heart is beating, and all sorts of aspects of it that, that it could actually bring about death. And he's looking ahead. He knows that there's a death coming. Jesus tells Peter and James and John after they've separated from the other eight disciples, they come over and He says, I want you to remain here and, and watch. Stay awake, alert, observant. And then it says, going a little further, and this is where that picture of a stone's throw comes in. Christ was, starts talking about this picture of the cup. And in, within the framework of His prayer, uh, He says, My Father, if it be possible, verse 39, if it be possible, let this cup pass from Me. He already knows the answer to this prayer. So He's not praying for the cup to be dismissed from Him. He's just airing the depth of his soul and the grief that he has. If it were possible, and he's not even asking if there's another way, he knows the answer to that. He's just saying, I'm looking ahead to this, and I, quite candidly, he's, he's dreading it. He's, he's in grief over it. It's, it's crushing his heart. And he says, you know, nevertheless, 
So I looked at this and I thought, you know, uh, if I were doing this, I would be speaking in the, in the flesh. When I would be praying this, I would be saying, Lord, take the cup from me. Take it away from me. I don't want it. I don't want, and I'm not sure I'd ever get to nevertheless. Uh, but the idea of nevertheless comes in here. Let's take a moment and just pray for this, Cyrus. Lord, we just uh, pray for this situation, whatever it is going on. We ask that you be with the people that it's involving and with the first responders keeping them safe. In Jesus' name, amen. I find that if we do that, we all heard it and distracted, we might as well do it together. And, uh, but, you know, the, 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 the idea of this cup and drinking the cup, and, I was, and, and, and there's a whole study on just the idea of the cup of wrath. Jeremiah speaks about it in chapter 25. Uh, the, the, the cup of, of, of God's wrath. Uh, it, it says, the, let's see, in verse 15 of, of Jeremiah 25, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. The wine of wrath, meaning the, the cup of judgment. What Jesus was to drink, what He was speaking about this cup, was the cup of God's wrath, the cup of judgment. The cup that would not cancel sin in the sense of just pushing it out of the way, but pay for sin. It was my cup. It was our cup. It was the church's cup. Everybody that is within the framework of the church, it was our cup. It was, it was our sin. We sing a song that says that how amazing that it is that our sin put Him there. And we, and we, we dwell on it and say, it's an amazing thing that I will, will get from uh, and receive from His reward that I get a part of it. Because why? Because I'm the one that filled the cup that He drank. He didn't put anything into the cup. None of it came from Him. He was absolutely innocent. Sinless. And He drinks the cup. Why? Because before the foundation of the world, He loved us. I was listening to a song just yesterday that He knew my name before the foundation of the world. I want you to be sure you understand that Christ was willing to drink the cup. He wasn't trying to get out from underneath that. It was just the coming together. What He was looking for was to be strengthened and made ready to face what was ahead. I look at this and I put it this way on my notes. Christ was willing to drink my cup. And then I put in parentheses all uh, all cups <laughs> because I didn't want to be selfish there, um, and and be separated from the Father. You see, that is what's the penalty of sin? Separation from the Father. By the way, how long is, is uh, are you separated from the Father if you have to pay the penalty of sin? Anybody know? It's forever. Somehow, you see, only an eternal being could on the cross experience in a moment what forever is in the sense of our sin. 
He knows what it is to be apart from the Father eternally. No wonder as he looked ahead to this that he was grieved to the soul and troubled that he missed his home. <laughs> I love the way G. Spurgeon and G. Campbell Morgan put that. So he's, he's drinking my cup. He's being separated from the Father. He's experiencing the sting, I think of Paul, he's experiencing the sting of death. So that I will be able to say, death, where is your sting? And, and, and say it in such a way as to, to almost be mocking death because you have no hold over me anymore. Even though you can take my life. The worst thing you can do to me is take my life and I win. The sting of death is gone. Why? Because Jesus took it for me. The end result is if I receive this gift, I will now be seen as one with no condemnation. Romans 8.1 And then go through the chapter of Romans 8 and realize how we share in the inheritance of Christ. Joint heirs with Jesus. He calls us brother and sister. All the things that come out of that. Because He was willing to drink the cup. If possible, in a sense, the, the, the man side of Jesus and even the God-man speaking not knowing that that wasn't what was happening, but, but very clearly he says, nevertheless, this is the plan and, and, and your will be done. You've got to understand, when he emptied himself, he put himself into submission to the Father in such a way that he's like any other person. And his, his track record of obedience was perfect. Verse 40 he comes back to the disciples again and he, and, he, and he finds them sleeping. So, and, and so again, he says, watch. Pray that you might not enter temptation. Jesus pulls away again to pray the second time. And, and then he comes back, verse 43, and the disciples are sleeping. They've gone back to sleep again. And he pulls away a third time to pray. And then he comes back. The disciples are still asleep. And again, leaning on Spurgeon here, he, he had an interesting way of looking at this. He said, sleep and take your rest. Notice that there was never any anger or re rebuke here. He didn't, he didn't say you've failed, you've done wrong, this type of thing. He knows their weaknesses and he loves them. And the idea was that that last part of time when he comes back, he watched over them for a period of time. doesn't say how long. And then he says, now it's time to rise. Wake up and let's go. It's, it, it, things are, are beginning to progress. I want you to see here another se section of what's going on. It's, you know, if you go back to Isaiah 53 and, and, and you know, again, Psalm 22 and other scriptures that reference the, the, the sacrifice that's being made here, not only was it only Jesus could do it, but that He was going to do it alone. He was going to be abandoned by His closest. He, would, he was going to be alone. And so within the framework of all of this, there's a, a, a huge loneliness with Him. 
a grief, a sadness, a loneliness. He comes and his disciples are sleeping. No camaraderie. No consolation. He does get consolation in the midst of all of this when an angel actually comes to him and ministers to him. We're told that he literally sweats drops of blood while this is happening. That is a real possibility. That can happen. It could happen to us under the right circumstances. I got to hear at a conference a number of years ago, a doctor actually explained this, about the little capillaries that are around the, the, the uh, sweat glands. And you're under such pressure. Think about this. Your heart is pumping so hard, you're under such pressure that the blood pressure elevates that those little tiny capillaries that are not used to handling large quantities of blood are engorged and they what? Burst. And the blood literally gets into the glands of the, of, of the sweat glands and literally comes out. It, it can happen. Normally when it happens, it's a sign of death is imminent. But the angel came and ministered and saw Jesus the man through. Jesus was to go through this alone. This grief, this sorrow, this desire to be over and done with it as it fell on Him, as it began even here to crescendo and grow in intensity. I, I looked at this and, and, and I said, you know, I think, I think I'm getting a pretty good grasp on this. And then I was reading something wrote, written by uh, John Piper who said that, that at best we see very dimly here. We're, only, we're grasping at words based on what our ability to fathom them are. And he says, we are weak in that. We can't fully understand what Christ has gone through. And I think sometimes when, when, when it says that we, we see dimly now, but we will see clearly, you know, some people think, well, well man, when we get to heaven, then we're going to know everything. I, I think we're going to continually, there's no way we as finite beings, people with a beginning, will ever fully comprehend an infinite being. We will be learning and seeing and, and praising all the things that we continue to learn for eternity. I really believe that. And it's going to be an amazing thing. Every time we look on His face, we're going to see something fresh, something new, something exciting about who He is and what He's done. But I do believe we're going to grasp the truth of what He went through in a better and stronger way. And all the more that we are going to worship and to praise and to be thankful more than we could ever be even now because of, of what we will be able to understand. He, like I said, the last verse of this morning, verse 46, Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. You know, he picked Judas. 
And he knew from the beginning where, what Judas' role was in this. But I can't help but believe that this also added to the sorrow and, and, and grief that he was experiencing. As he says, let us be going, the idea is, is the idea of going in the direction toward. You know, what would be our instinct? Go in the direction away. <laughs> you know. And so he's you know, he's saying, let's go towards what is coming now. It's time to face it. And they did as a group, at least that far, go forward together. They walked towards Judas's kiss. Jesus was ready, had been strengthened by the angel. He was prepared now to drink the cup. And there wasn't a point here where he was asking for the cross to be removed, the pain and the suffering of the cross to be removed. Notice what he asked to be removed was the grief and the sorrow of the cup of of judgment. He was ready to drink the cup for all who would believe and be saved. All who would confess Him as the Son of God and believe that God raised Him from the dead and to be saved. Again, as we approach communion this morning, the sins weren't canceled. The sins were paid in full. I had a quote that I downloaded from something that John MacArthur wrote, an article that he wrote. It says, they threatened Jesus' life. Now on the cross, He didn't die from the nails. He didn't die from the crown of thorns on His head. He didn't die from the lashing on His back. He didn't die from the spear in His side. He was already dead. What did He die from? He didn't die from long hours and days of asphyxiation, although that's the way crucified victims eventually died. They were crucified in such a way that their legs were used as long as they could sustain it to hold themselves up and catch a breath. And sometimes that went on for for a couple of days even, and even longer. And finally they would collapse and their lungs would collapse. He died very fast for a crucified victim. They were surprised that he was already dead. In fact, so much so that they said, let's double check. And that's where the spear on the side came from. Surely he died of an exploded heart because of the stress of the agony of the cross. The anguish even here before he gets there is severe enough to threaten his life. How much does God love us? More than we can comprehend. It's an amazing thing that God has done for us. Every time we come to communion, He says, do this in remembrance of Me. And He even adds, when we read it in two different places, He even adds with the understanding, until I come again. And at that point, we will share this together. I I, I just, you know, I long for that day. And it's appropriate for us to say, I guess, in the sense of Maranatha, come soon, Lord Jesus. But at the same time, in waiting for Him, asking Him to, to use us for His purposes, for His kingdom's work, but also that we might glorify Him 
And as we share in communion, thanking Him for all that He has done for us. But we're also told that at communion to examine our hearts and see if there's things that we need to bring before the Lord. And so we have a moment to do that while the communion is being passed out. We want the communion to be passed out and then, and then hold it until we've all been served. And then we'll share it together. Ushers, please. Worship team.